Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything to do with Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. You can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube or go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. In this episode, everyone else is talking about it, so will we. We look at the seven days of madness in Canberra, how the Turnbull leadership spill compares with all the others in Australian history, and we have a new Prime Minister. What does the future hold for Scott Morrison? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. And I'm David Lewis, writer, musician, editor and public speaker. We've just had one of the most tumultuous weeks ever in Australian politics, which pretty much had everything. We had two leadership spills within four days, 10 ministers offered their resignations, Parliament was cancelled, the right wing of the Liberal Party that created the dramas in the first place failed to win the leadership, and Scott Morrison became the 30th Prime Minister of Australia. The week had everything. Gross incompetence, dereliction of duty, backstabbing, skullduggery, double-crossing, and the age-old phrase that we always love to hear, he has my full support. We haven't seen a week like this for a long time, have we, David? No. A lot of people were comparing it to uh, 1975 with the Whitlam thing, and I think there were some interesting connections. I think it's actually better to go back to uh, John Gorton, in, in which Gorton votes against himself, for the leadership. He has the casting vote. The Liberal Party comes through tide. And so with his casting vote, he votes against himself, which is, of course, against all convention. In many ways, Malcolm Turnbull's not standing was a very similar thing. He, he was, in an odd way, the people's choice. He was never hugely popular, but he was more popular than everybody else who was standing for the job with the possible exception, to be fair, of Julie Bishop, who brings along her own problems, some of her own making and some uh, external. It was a beautifully entertaining week for political pundits, even if it took us away from the main issues. Well, I was watching the broadcast from Perth last week and I was glued to the TV set for the entire week. It was just difficult to get away from it. Most of the people that I spoke to outside of politics were not really that interested in it, but still it was a fascinating week. And these sort of leadership spills and challenges, they don't tend to happen out of isolation. There's a reason for for why this happened. So Malcolm Turnbull, he certainly was the electorate's choice as far as preferred prime minister but preferred prime minister is quite a useless metric as far as i can see it doesn't really tell you the full picture the liberal national party they've actually been lagging in the polls for a long long time they haven't been ahead since august 2016 malcolm turnbull's performance pretty much ever since he became prime minister in september 2015 has been underwhelming those last few days i think showed the prime minister that people expected He was smart. He was fair. He outsmarted the right quite easily. The masterstroke, of course, was demanding a letter signed by the numbers, which they didn't have. He must have known they didn't have. They they were better counters. And, of course, any Labor politician, I imagine somebody like Tony Burke, was very amused watching of the counting of the numbers. Even when um, Malcolm Turnbull was rolled by Tony Abbott back in 2009, that was capitalising on a stroke of luck, of course, of Joe Hockey uh, deciding to stand and splitting the moderate vote, which made Joe Hockey very few friends. 
in his own side of politics. But Nick Minchin, of course, realised that if hockey stood, they'd be able to squeeze through a right faction candidate. There was none of this type of thought with Dutton. Dutton thought that he would be able to just bully his way through. And the people who he bullied stood up to him and basically voted against him. Malcolm Turnbull, of course, received 43 votes on the first challenge. That's right. It was 43 votes for Malcolm Turnbull and 35 votes for Peter Dutton, the challenger. And then the second time, 45 to Scott Morrison and 40 to Peter Dutton. So he he gained a couple of votes and we probably know who these people are. But it was in terms of pure politics, the numbers, completely wrong. And Malcolm rose to the challenge. He rose to the challenge quite well in those final couple of days and also when he made his valedictory speech. But again, the question is, well, where has he been for the past three years? But getting back to Peter Dutton, so he was the challenger. Now, I don't think that he was the the leading cause of this challenge. It would have been prompted by Tony Abbott, who was dumped by or challenged by Malcolm Turnbull three years ago. But there's the age-old adage within leadership challenges, you always need to bring your abacus. And it seems like Peter Dutton didn't bring the abacus. He couldn't work out the numbers. Matthias Corman couldn't also work out the numbers. So I think it was a poorly organised coup and it was quite indicative of a disorganised and a poorly performing government since they got into office in 2013. The other parallel is, of course, the 1980s with the Howard-Peacock rivalry. And that too was a, a battle for the Liberal Party soul, if you like, with the hard-edged Howardists, for want of a better word, and the softer-edged Peacock followers who represented the Deacon-Reed split. And this, is, and this is going back to, you know, 1901 and beyond, the free traders and the protectionists, essentially. And we're still fighting those battles in the Liberal Party, which is really interesting. I think the problem for the Liberal Party is that it does have an extreme right wing, and that's going to cause a lot of electoral problems for it. Well, it is creating problems for it now, and it will create problems for it in the future. But generally, whichever side of politics you're on, whether it's left or right or centre, you need to have a broad base behind your electoral appeal. So a party can't be extreme right wing or it can't, and it can't be extreme left wing because they'll always remain on the fringes. And the Liberal Party is a mainstream party. It's a mainstream political party. And when there are too many right wing MPs, especially if they're extreme right wing, well, that means that they're unrepresentative of the electorate at large, and that will create problems for the Liberal Party. The Australian electorate hovers around the centre. Sometimes they tip a bit left, sometimes they tip a bit right, and that's probably for the best. Extremes of each get balanced, and after you know two, 113 years, we were, we were tipping to the right a bit, but it was always balanced. Now the Liberal Party has tipped further to the right, Corey Bernardi, uh, of course, split from the Liberal Party and formed the Australian Conservatives, who haven't really made such a splash. And I'm guessing that's because he's not attracting high-profile candidates because the natural fit to a party called the Australian Candidates are people like Abbott, Peter Dutton, uh, Scott Morrison, who are too entrenched in the power structures to move to a minor party you know, our ministers who are making a difference, who are pushing their agendas, whatever they are, whether you like them or not, that's what they 
do as politicians. I am wondering if there is a split headed towards the party or whether this is just really business as usual, except they normally sort it out in opposition. What, what do you think, Eddie? Within, within any political party, there's a number of different factions and there's a number of different sides within that political party. It's almost like there's two political parties in the, in the one. So the Liberal Party has had these fissures or these factions in there for a long, long time. And you're absolutely right. Quite often they are sorted out within opposition. Quite often they are sorted out behind closed doors. The public doesn't need to see this sort of situation. What the Liberal Party have done over, pretty much over the past five years, they've tried to resolve these issues in, in public. And I think what we saw last week and what we also saw back in 2015 when Turnbull challenged Abbott and won the Prime Ministership at that stage... We're also seeing the same things aired in, in public. And, and this is the sort of stuff that should go behind closed doors. It should be sorted out in opposition. And, and because they've been publicly displaying these differences and factional disputes and factional fights, well, they probably will be rewarded with time in opposition where they can sort out this sort of stuff behind closed doors. No one needs to see it. And then they'll come back as a stronger stronger party where they can challenge those ideas that exist around the centre, not at the extreme right. That's not where the electorate is. Certainly there's some members of the electorate that are at the extreme fringes of the left or the right, and sure, that's okay. They can have their one or two members and not be a political force, but when they are contained within the Liberal Party or the Labor Party, that's when you start having, having problems. There's a denial in the Liberal Party that they have factions. And of course they have factions. If you want to be the broad church, you have to have factions. And this is where Labor does get it right. The Greens are struggling with it. And I think the Greens will struggle with it for a long time. And it may be like the Democrats be their, their downfall. Labor Party organized factions and you join, of course, or you align with a faction. And you're very open about who your faction is, who you support as a result of that faction and what deals a faction has done with other factions to get stuff through. The right, of course, was very dominant for a very long time. It still is, really, although the right is starting to change. It was seen as a rather pointless assassination, probably the most pointless assass political assassination of the Federation. And even Rudd was replaced with an obviously decent candidate in, in Julia Gillard. Malcolm Turnbull had poor polling, but his polling was better than everybody else. He had scandals, and I've been meaning to uh, congratulate you on picking the GBRF, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, as an important thing that needed more attention. He had Dutton's own issues, not least the au pair affair, as it's uh, been called, the Section 44 issue with payments to his wife's childcare centres, and, of course, the ongoing problems with Nauru. He never had a strong ministerial team. There was no obvious replacement. Even in the Howard Peacock years, the obvious replacement was the other one. <laughs> if John Howard was in, then Andrew Peacock could replace him. If Peacock was leading him, John Howard could replace him. It was a very strange thing. And we, we now have Scott Morrison, who has failed as a treasurer, who had lost a lot of support in the party, who was said to be on the outside. He was not really making contributions to cabinet, etc. Before you mention that idea of Liberal Party factions, let's listen to this little snippet from Malcolm Turnbull. We're not run by factions. 
We're not run by... Well, you may, you may, uh, you may, you may uh, dispute that, but I have to tell you from experience, we are not run by factions. Nor, 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 are, we run, nor are we run by big business or by deals in back rooms. We, we rely on the ideas and the energy and the enterprise of our membership. And without those committed and passionate individuals from every walk of life, our party could not long survive. So that was quite a strange reaction from the Liberal Party faithful when Malcolm Turnbull mentioned that there are no factions within the Liberal Party. There was a great laugh. And of course there are factions within the Liberal Party. But do you think that these are the these factional issues are what led up to this challenge? Like did this most recent challenge and, and the two spills, did it commence back in 2009 when Abbott defeated Turnbull, when Turnbull was the opposition leader of the Liberal Party? And did it commence in 2015 when Turnbull challenged Abbott and when Ch- Abbott was famously challenged by an empty chair? Seems like there's a lot of ego involved here. So Tony Abbott, in the same way as Kevin Rudd, didn't like being deposed back in 2010, he plotted his revenge. Tony Abbott plotted his revenge as well. So the idea of the factions within the Liberal Party, or those factions within the Liberal Party, they shackled Turnbull's performance ever since he became Prime Minister. And that's one thing that we can't ignore. I think there's much deeper issues going going on, and some of them we can't really see from the outside. I think the coal lobby has a massive part to play in this. I think uh, there's, I've seen the suggestion that the idea that Malcolm Turnbull wished to bring in any kind of carbon reduction, sorry, emission reduction, was enough for big Liberal Party donors and followers in the mining industry to support his removal. And of course, Scott Morrison, famously described by Paul Bongiorno as a clown for doing this, brought a lump of coal into Parliament and said it doesn't hurt anybody, it's good, it's good for the future of Australia, and passed the coal around to various sympathetic members of Parliament. I think we have a toxic media. I've been saying this for years. Australian independent media is, I think, one of the great things of the Australian media landscape. I think with Rupert Murdoch owning so much and him pushing his very conservative views that also align with the coal lobby. 30% of Murdoch's money is tied up in oil and coal and things like that. Not many people realise that. That's where he makes most of his money. The media is losing money hand over fist. He more or less cross-subsidises it. Ironically, the big policy issue that brought on the downfall of Malcolm Turnbull was the National Energy Guarantee. And I've looked at the timetable for this, and at the beginning of 2017... That's when Malcolm Turnbull announced that his government was going to focus on energy in Australia. And it's almost like creating the illusion of a crisis so he could produce a solution to that. But there was no solution. Like This seemed to be the millstone around Malcolm Turnbull's neck. The inability to produce a viable energy policy. It was incredibly poor politics and it ultimately brought on his downfall. I guess you can't please everybody all of the time and part of leadership is sometimes staring down a hostile party. Sometimes it's being gleefully carried by them. Very occasionally it's you, you do manage to balance it nicely. 
actually probably more often than not you manage you should be able to manage to balance it nicely people like john howard were able to do that in terms of the party malcolm turnbull never quite was able now of course we do have the destructive figure of tony abbott whose whole thing only seems to be destruction he doesn't really put things in place to show his legacy he rips other people's down other people's achievements down it seems and the irony is that Malcolm Turnbull has left the federal parliament. Tony Abbott is still there. There is a rumour that Tony Abbott's still there because no one else will hire him. I don't know how true that is. It, most prime ministers go on to prestigious jobs um, and Tony has not been able to do that. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next... We look at how this leadership spill compares with all the other spills in Australian history. Norton, Fraser, Hawke, Rudd, Gillard, Abbott and Turnbull. These are all the Prime Ministers that have been challenged by their own party. Some have survived, some haven't. There's a wide range of reasons why Prime Ministers are challenged. Sometimes it's poor performance, sometimes it's low poll numbers, sometimes it's just ego and sometimes it's sheer bastardry. But this time around, it was a combination of everything. You don't tip your Prime Minister lightly. Paul Keating claimed uh, he tipped Bob Hawke because Hawke had made him a guarantee and that honour and ethics and all of the good things that our politicians are supposed to be meant that he had to to get it. That was rather shocking times. Before then, because we'd had the um, Andrew Peacock challenge against Malcolm Fraser, which didn't go anywhere and was seen more as a warning shot. And, of course, Peacock did replace Uh, Fraser when he resigned from Parliament in 1983 after losing the election to Bob Hawke. Whitlam never really faced any serious challenges. I suspect he might have had he stood past 1977. There were talks and rumbles. And, of course, the catastrophe of the Federal Liberal Party of post-1966, Paul Haslark, which I've recommended before his excellent diaries, suggested that there were already moves afoot to unseat Holt before he was lost at uh, Portsea by Gorton. Haslark was very surprised at how quickly Gorton was able to move and realised that most likely it's because he'd already started the numbers. Of course, Gorton had to put up with Billy McMahon, who in many ways is a a predecessor to Tony Abbott uh, in terms of his reputation and his political manoeuvrings around the time of federation maybe for the first 15 20 years and of course australia was still working out how its political system was operating but in those days there were there were quite a few changes in prime minister but that was usually prime ministers usually lost their position maybe for the first 
50 or 60 years of federation by either dying, resigning, losing on the floor of parliament, which would mean that the entire government would change, not just the prime minister, or they'd lose an election. So the first leadership spill for a sitting prime minister was 1971. And that was, as you mentioned, it was Gorton challenged by McMahon. Then there's a nine-year gap. The Fraser was challenged by Peacock. Uh, that was in 1992. And then there were a couple of challenges uh, by Paul Keating against Bob Hawke, 1991. So there's roughly a nine-year gap between those incidents. Then we didn't have one at all from between 1991 and 2010. But In the past eight years, we've had nine challenges, nine leadership spills for the Prime Minister. I think we've had the same number of Prime Ministers in the last 10 years as we did in the first 10 years of Federation. Back then, we were still sorting things out. Parties were still really forming and working out who agreed with who. Um, You get three months of the Labor Party, the first national Labor Party in the world as it happened under, um, under John Christian Watson. You get a deacon... Cook, as a compromised candidate, you get Reid, the first person and only one of two to have served as uh, Premier of a state, New South Wales in Reid's case, and, and Prime Minister. Reid then went on to Britain, clearly with the intention of becoming uh, British Prime Minister, although he didn't even get close in the end. Over the last 10 years, we've had a, a combination of a whole lot of things. Big egos, small talent, parties panicking. Kevin Rudd's popularity, I think it was at 56% when they knifed him, or 58%. John Howard said, I'd have killed for numbers like that. He had much lower numbers the whole time. He, he, he was very struck by the panic in, in Labor's eyes. Both of the mainstream political parties have got rule books about leadership challenges as well. So rules are rules. The Labor Party has got very formal processes for dealing with the leadership of the Labor Party. The Liberal Party also has a rule book, but the rule book is that there are no rules for the leadership. So if there is a leadership spill within the Liberal Party, and we had two last week, it's up to the Prime Minister or the leader of the Liberal Party to decide how that leadership should be resolved. So if Malcolm Turnbull decided to last week, he could have challenged Peter Dutton to a round of three games of chess if he wanted to. He could have asked for a sword challenge at dawn. The following morning, he could have, they, could have been, they could have drawn pistols. He could have submitted a, an English language test or something like that. It's pretty much up to the Prime Minister of the day to decide how these issues are resolved. So first of all, of course, he called a, a direct spill. That was a bit of a surprise. And then the second time, he demanded that there were 43 signatures and Peter Dutton's eligibility to sit into, in Parliament had to be assessed by the Solicitor General. So there are no rules. The leader of the Liberal Party can make up the rules as they go along. This, of course, can be a good thing. The Rudd rules may be a little bit tight for the Labor Party. We don't know yet. They haven't been tested. Certainly, uh, Kevin brought those in to stop the constant spilling of leaders in, in the Labor Party to give the Prime Minister a go and and I guess ultimately to let caucus decide who leads them to an election and then let the people decide who leads the country and if it's the Labour Party and then after the election you can then rethink it. The Liberal Party tend, of course, preferring individuals and individual thought are a bit less strict on, on their rules of how to change and this has worked for them very well. 
until recently. Well, there has been talk within the Liberal Party of introducing rules that are similar to the Labor Party to stop these types of challenges and leadership spills occurring. Currently, within the Liberal Party, only two MPs need to sign a form to say that they want a leadership challenge. Whereas in the Labor Party, they need 75% of caucus to, to, to vote in that particular way. So it's quite different for the Liberal Party and they have been calling for changes to the rules. So frivolous challenges and frivolous spills can't be organised and as you mentioned before this has possibly been one of the most pointless leadership spills in Liberal Party history. So the public are quite sick of these sort of processes anyway. As far as they're concerned they want to vote in a even though they don't vote in directly the Prime Minister they want to have a say in this process and they've been ignored totally in this leadership spill. The people who always lose in this are the day-to-day members, the people who sign up, join the party, hand out the leaflets, push the argument, do the work for the party, and they end up being disenfranchised in, in, in many ways. Internal polling showed that Peter Dutton's following, even amongst Liberal Party members, was very low. And Scott Morrison, it seems, hasn't inspired the party membership we're not getting the great from from everyday members we're not getting the the great outpouring of well things will get better from here uh this is the best thing that can happen that happened with even with people like billy mcmahon you know billy's very popular with women and this will revitalize us after the larrikinism of john gordon thank goodness we have a larrikin in who can connect with the Australian people, unlike the rather staid harold holt it seems like the main problem for the dutton team and this was probably led by Matthias Cormann in some sense, their main problem was that they were just not very good at mathematics. Now, in all of those other challenges that we've mentioned, there's been people on on both sides of the equation working out the numbers. They've brought their abacus along. They've brought their calculator along. They've brought their spreadsheet to work out all the numbers and who is in whose column, who has been promised this, who has been promised that. But it seems like Matthias Cormann didn't really understand the numbers It was quite a strange situation where he was totally convinced that Peter Dutton had the numbers to roll Malcolm Turnbull. Even up to that day, he was saying that he supported Malcolm Turnbull. And then, for some strange reason, he lost his calculator. He didn't have his abacus. He lost his spreadsheet. He decided he was going to vote with Peter Dutton and that he'd lost confidence in Malcolm Turnbull's leadership. Alice Workman reported that she had received notification that the Dutton forces were lied to about the numbers. Um, I don't doubt that Alice received this uh, information. I do doubt that it's truth. And I I don't think, I'm not going to put Alice Workman into this. I think she's reporting information that she, and she's been in a lot of trouble recently. So we should be, I'm not trying to pile on for her for this. I think that she took it in good faith. I, I think if the strategies they were using were right, reducing women politicians to tears, telling people that they'd lose their pre-selection if they didn't vote for him was correct and trying to bully their way in, it's no wonder he lost as badly as he did. It's still, as it should be, a secret ballot. And I think you could find that those five votes were lost in the three women who were reduced to tears and one or two others who had been threatened with losing their pre-selection if they didn't vote for him. But you could see somebody like Warren Edge bristling against that type of thing, voting despite it and, you know, basically threatening them to try and take the pre-selection off him. 
Well, you can be guaranteed that that sort of behaviour that would have taken place within the number gathering process would have quite obviously transferred into into government performance as well if Peter Dutton had to become the Prime Minister. So these are henchmen tactics. These are not tactics that we'd like to see in politics. Politics, of course, is a, is a tough game. So people generally do whatever they can to get their way, but there are limits. And, and as far as I can see... Australia probably dodged a bullet when Peter Dutton was defeated as as the Prime Minister. And of course, you never know what a Prime Minister is going to be like until they get to that position, but neither does the prospective Prime Minister. Peter Dutton wouldn't have known what he would have been like as Prime Minister, and thankfully he never will. No, I I think he's finished as a candidate. In a post-Abbott world, of course, it's very hard to make these predictions, but I think there's too much of a stench of corruption He's too unpopular and the party's not going to trust him for at least five years and I don't think he's going to win his seat at the next election and I don't think the people of Dixon will give it back. And he did try to go for a safer seat in Queensland and was knocked back by the party. So I think he's had his one shot. He missed by a mile. I'm not quite sure we've dodged a bullet. Dutton really just extended the policies that Scott Morrison brought in. Well, I guess there is the other factor in play here, but is there a possibility that Peter Dutton was provided as the most antagonistic and most awful prospect of Prime Minister, and then when Scott Morrison comes in, people think, well, that's not too bad compared to what we could have had? Yeah, I think think in that kind of way, he's a bit more preferable. I think that any seats that were going to be kept have been lost due to the redistribution that was done. The Liberal Party was actually down two seats anyway. So not only did they have to maintain their one-seat majority, they had to actually, to maintain that, they had to actually win an extra two seats, which was always an uphill battle. Under Malcolm Turnbull, they had a slightly better chance. Of course, we'll never know now. Under Peter Dutton, they had no chance. It will be very interesting to see under Scott Morrison, but I've seen projections of 20 and 25-seat losses to the Liberal Party, which are, which are all going to the Labor Party. They're not going to One Nation. They're not going to the Greens. They're going to the Labor Party. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we hold up the crystal ball and see what the future holds for this parliamentary term, this new Prime Minister and the future of the Liberal Party. Scott Morrison is the new Prime Minister. He has the difficult task of bringing together a fractured Liberal Party and hoping that the Australian electorate recognises who he actually is. So where the bloody hell are you? But he hasn't got much time, needing to hold the next election before May 2019. Already, Malcolm Turnbull has left Parliament, so there's a by-election coming up in the seat of Wentworth. The public is absolutely cynical about all of these leadership challenges and changes, And now there's talk about the Liberal Party splitting into two parts. Trying to win the next election might be a bridge too far for Scott Morrison to cross. There are just too many political problems that need to be resolved and it doesn't seem like he can be the one to resolve them. 
I don't think he can. He doesn't come in with a great reputation. He was head of Australian Tourism Commission. He was responsible for the Where the Bloody Hell Are You ads that got cut through but brought nobody to Australia. Unlike, say, the another shrimp on the barbie. I'll put another shrimp on the barbie for you from Paul uh, Hogan, which boosted Australian tourism to a, a very significant part of the Australian economy. Where the bloody hell are you? Brought nobody in. It failed as a campaign. It, it grabbed a bit of traction here, but we already live here. <laughs> and also what you'd expect from a newly installed Prime Minister, the whitewashing and the makeover of Scott Morrison has already started. He's instructed his ministers to wear Australian flag lapels. He's pushed forward this idea of we're on your side, which reminds me of the 1996 Liberal Party slogan for all of us. He did make a lightning trip to regional Queensland to inspect the drought. I, I thought it really interesting that the first thing he did for the drought was to send the army in. Now, the army, of course, can do some brilliant work in disaster relief, for example. You know, the cyclone comes through and you need people who are trained in putting up infrastructure very quickly uh, and working with destroyed infrastructure. To go in and I don't know quite what he expects the army to do except scare the drought off. He then, of course, appoints Barnaby Joyce to the role of envoy, and I think that's something we might get back to. The lapel pins are this silly American idea of the, the flag being this somehow sacred symbol that can't be changed, that must be forever put above everything else, including the Constitution and the laws of the country, and to, to remind people as if politicians don't spend six months or 12 months campaigning as to who they're for. Yes, the Australian flag lapel, that was quite interesting. It reminded me of Philip Ruddick wearing the Amnesty International lapel on his suit as well. So I'm not sure if these are meant to be ironic. I guess what they are doing is trying to push forward the image, which dovetails into his whole message of we're on your side. We're wearing Australian flag lapels. That that means that we're working for you. So I can understand the media massaging process of that, but I'm not sure if it's going to work. In the first set of polls that have come out since Scott Morrison became the Prime Minister, they're not very good. I actually thought that they might be a lot worse, but they're 55, 50, in the region of 55-56% for the Labor Party in two-party preferred numbers. I think the first Prime Minister since Menzies, and Menzies got one anyway, to not have a honeymoon period. Most Prime Ministers get up to three months, three or four or five months, John Howard had a long honeymoon period, if my memory serves me correctly. Paul Keating had a, a reasonable one. Kevin Rudd had a medium one. Julia Gillard had a short one. But usually you get a couple of weeks where you can settle into the job and the press and, and the people go a bit easy on you. Let's see, let's see how they're doing. That first poll, and again, we've got to be careful with polls, but a few of them came out, showed that he's not going to get an easy time to settle into the job. I think a lot of people don't think he should be in the job. It's hard to make somebody like Malcolm Turnbull, who in many ways was the captain of the own goal football team, a sympathetic creature, or Julie Bishop for that matter. Julie Bishop did not really impress in foreign affairs. They've been able to do that, that those two, and let's be fair, senior 
senior Liberal Party figures who were in very significant jobs. In- incumbency does help, and obviously the Liberal Party and the National Party, they're in government at the moment. So we touched on this idea of the the future of the Liberal Party. So some commentators were suggesting that this is the end of the Liberal Party. It's going to be split after they lose government, which inevitably seems to be on the cards. But these sort of things are always predicted for political parties. And we can remember back to the 2007 election where the Liberal Party was gone forever. The Labor Party after the 1996 election and then after the 2004 election, they were meant to be gone forever, but they came back within three years under Kevin Rudd. So it's difficult to see what the future will hold and it's difficult to look out on that political horizon and see how things can change. But we do have to remember that the Liberal Party and the National Party, they're in they're in government at the moment. So that's a huge advantage. But there are too many things going on there. So Craig Laundie, he refused to accept any ministerial position in this government. He's the member for Reid at the moment, and it's unclear whether he'll contest the next election. We've got one national MP, Kevin Hogan. He's decided to sit on the crossbench. Julie Bishop has resigned from Foreign Affairs. We're still not sure if she'll be hanging around after the next election. Julie Banks from Victoria, she has definitely resigned, She, but she's going to resign at the next election. She accused the party of bullying her during these leadership spills. The anger against the Liberal Party will not be forgotten so easily. It's hard to it's hard to know exactly how this will play out, but it's not looking very good. The Liberal Party tends not to split but to reorganise. So it starts off really as two parties, the free traders and protectionists, filled with people who can't stand each other. Those differences are resolved loosely and they become the Liberal Party. They then, with the Labor Party split, they become the Nationalist Party with uh, ex-Labor Prime Minister at their helm. With the next split, they become the United Australia Party, again with an ex-Labor, ex-Senior Labor person in the head in terms of Joe Lyons. Menzies forms the Liberal Party in 1944, and it goes on to be essentially the same organisation in terms of its administrative organisation that we, we know today. It has that severe break between the hard right, we could call it the Abbott faction, and the moderates, which is everybody else. And and moderates are a term that's thrown around. Scott Morrison was called a moderate. He's not and has never really claimed to be. Matthias Cormann has been aligned with the moderates. Now, he, he, uh, of course, held the record in supporting three prime ministers in three days. Political parties... They don't just exist in in thin air sometimes, although some people could argue that they do, but they're they're made up of personalities and there are strong personalities within the Liberal Party and obviously it was Tony Abbott that pushed forward the the most recent turmoil in Canberra. These personalities need to be... They need to do things that occupy their time. I think one of the big problems for Malcolm Turnbull was that Tony Abbott was on the backbench for all of the time that Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister. He had a lot of spare time on his hands. He had a lot of time to to think about things, to stew about things, to recruit other people to his cause, other like-minded MPs. Malcolm Turnbull should have given Tony Abbott something to do, but he didn't. One of the first things that Scott Morrison 
did was that he offered a position to, well, to two people, one to Barnaby Joyce, the, the envoy for the drought, and another one to Tony Abbott, the envoy for Indigenous Affairs. Now, I know that this was mainly being produced to give Tony Abbott something to do, but this is a slap in the face for Indigenous Australia. One of the first acts that Abbott did when he became Prime Minister in 2013 was that he cut $530 million from frontline Indigenous services, including legal aid and programs to reduce domestic violence. And that, that he actually did that before their first budget in 2014. He announced that within a couple of weeks of becoming Prime Minister, he said that Australia was a barren land before 1788. I think he just mentioned that it was just all bush. He said that European invasion overall was good for Indigenous people. He's obviously out of touch on Indigenous issues, why make him an, an envoy in this area? That seems like a very odd decision. I can't help but feel that Abbott wants to have the same type of standing in the Indigenous community as in chronological order. Malcolm Fraser, oh, sorry, Gough Whitlam, Malcolm Fraser, Paul Keating, Kevin Rudd. You know, you see that iconic picture of Gough Whitlam with Vincent Lingiari. For example, you see the special ceremony that uh, Malcolm Fraser got at his funeral by Indigenous people. What Tony doesn't understand, it's not just a matter of promising to spend time with people. You actually have to to do things. Keating, of course, with the the Mabo decision and the, the Redfern speech. Kevin Rudd with the apology. If Kevin had done nothing else, I think that would give him the long-term gratification of Australian Indigenous people. I think Tony wants to be part of that without really knowing how to do it and without really comprehending that what he's done is really set Indigenous life back through his massive cuts. It was an odd one. Indigenous people, with the exception of Warren Mundine, have been outraged that such a person would be sent in to to help them when clearly he's never helped. It's an interesting thing. And I don't know if Morrison has decided that he doesn't care about Indigenous issues whatsoever, or if he generally is trying to help Tony rehabilitate himself and give him a job that's going to be too big for him. Only time will tell. I think one other character that we need to look at and has been a little bit forgotten about is the new treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, who hails from Victoria. Now, I noticed an odd situation over the weekend where he organised a photo opportunity with Peter Costello in a cafe. Now, there were no questions taken from the media. It wasn't anything. It was just purely a photo opportunity for him to show that he was in there with Peter Costello. Now, Peter Costello, he was the former treasurer of Australia. He was treasurer for 11 years, but he hasn't been the treasurer since 2007. He left politics a decade ago. He created all the structural problems that exist in the current day budget and he refused to take the liberal leadership in their hour of need back in 2008 so to me this sends out the message that the new treasurer josh frydenberg he's still on training wheels he needs a lot of help he's on his old plates it just seemed like a very odd media decision to make on his behalf he should have been out there pushing forward his economic ideas maybe it's a little bit too early in the piece for for this to happen but why on earth you'd want to photograph yourself with a, well, let's be honest, and has been politician from years ago? It just seems very strange as well. Symbolism is important. For the Liberal Party, uh, Costello was, is the greatest living treasurer. Others with different economic viewpoint might look at 
Wayne Swan or Paul Keating as two men who actually had to guide the economy through fairly severe recessions. Wayne Swan avoided the recession, Keating managed the recession. But certainly incumbency is important. Peter Costello delivered a budget that very much pleased people who were voting for him. You know, it were budgets that very, you know, the middle class tax cuts, the middle class welfare. This went right into the heart of liberal voting. So Frydenberg, I think, is trying to show his credibility as a as a figure who hasn't had a lot of experience with Treasury. He, as far as we can tell, he hasn't done a lot of deep economic work in his ministries. You're right in that for the broader public, for a lot of those people who voted for Costello, they've moved away. In the context of a new prime minister who will probably wish to stay in the position for as long as possible to solidify their position and so that people hear the words Prime Minister Scott Morrison as often as possible. That gives them more incumbency, gives, it solidifies their position. Now, given that situation, we probably won't see an election before May 2019. But even if it does go all the way to May 2019, we're unlikely to have another budget before then. So Josh Frydenberg, he won't be in that position. He's the new treasurer, but he won't be in a position to reveal a new budget unless they win the next election. He's got to, I think, still manage the old budget through. I think they're still still, uh, debating the May budget. Appropriations have gone through, but the policy stuff, they've they've dumped the tax cuts to the banks. And so I think, in a way, it's very much a poison chalice. You've, You've received yet another, the fifth budget, sixth budget, which hasn't gone through. This is unprecedented. I'm not, I, I'm not quite sure how many budgets haven't been passed in Australian political life. Obviously, the 75 one stands out as an example of one that wasn't passed. Well, quite often the budgets are passed with, with amendments, but usually they all go, go through. But this is the government since 2013 hasn't had one budget passed. It's a very strange situation. And, um, and again, who knows what Frydenberg's movements are going to be after, after the election. Well, it will be interesting to see what the what the Liberal Party and the National Party can offer as far as electoral viability over the next nine months. But for me, it's a little bit like watching a, a bad movie to see how it resolves. You watch it until the end to see how it resolves itself. And there's a lot of things that the Liberal Party needs to do if they wish to win the next election. Now, that's they're unlikely to win the next election, but obviously anything can happen in, in politics. Last week at the end of our podcast, we mentioned that we might have a new prime minister next month, and that turned out to be correct. So who knows what will happen next month or the month after. We don't know what will happen by May 2019. So there's a lot of things that could happen between now and then. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. We can even send a message to our Twitter account, newpoliticsau. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all and it's goodbye to our listeners. And I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.